We are starting a new book, and this is a lot of fun because it's like a brand new class. It's if you're a teacher, it's like a first day of school kind of thing, but it's not so much school. It's so much the Word of God, and hopefully you don't treat this like a school, although people have a phobia about school, and this is why we don't want to make it into like a school because people don't have to do homework, have to read, uh, uh, but you are going to be accounted to think. You're going to be accountable to think, and that is something unique in churches, Asking you to think, because a lot of times you come into church and you just go, I just want the pastor to tell me what I want to believe. You know, just let him tell me. I don't want to think, because I'm thinking about other stuff while he's talking. I'm thinking about tire rotations and oil changes and what i got to cook the kids to school tomorrow for the kids and things like that. Well, they're not in school, but you know what I'm saying. You have to teach. You have to cook something up tomorrow, or you're thinking about lunch or whatever. So many times people don't think. They just allow Whatever's being said, eh, that's fine. Go on, move on. And uh, so you are going to be accountable to think. Imagine a church telling you to have to think through the Bible. And that's something very, very important. Why? Because we're going to do something very unique. We're going to get to know Romans. So the title of our message today, it is an intro to Romans, but it's getting to know you. Getting to know you. Uh, you know that song that you sing with the kids? You ever sang that with your little, when they were little? Getting to know you, getting to know more about You didn't sing it. Must be a parent thing, you know. That's what they used to sing for, our little ones. You know, getting to know you. You go first day of school. You want to talk to your friends, and you want to get to know them. Getting to know who? Getting to know the book of Romans. Just curious. How many have read the book of Romans straight through, from chapter 1 all the way to the end? All right. How many guys have studied the book of Romans from beginning to end? Okay, very few. Okay. Remember the difference, reading and studying, right? There's a, there's a difference. Okay. Uh, I have never taken a congregation through the book of Romans. Shame on me uh, because we spend all the time studying other things. Uh, we did teach it a couple, to- a couple of chapters here and there, but never through the entire book. Never through the entire book. So I'm looking forward to it. For one thing is for sure, it is good news. It is good news to sinners. The book of Romans is good news to sinner, bad news. To good people. Good news for sinners, bad news for religious goodies. <laughs> you know what I mean? Religious goodies? Those people that come to church and they think they're great people because they come to church, never been born again, never been regenerated, but they're do gooders. They're do gooders and they think because they're doing good, God owes them something. So they have a special relationship with God because they're do gooders. And uh, they, they look at other people like me that have sinned. And have, they didn't grow up in church, and they say, ha, that guy, you know, he's second-class citizen. And there are religious people like that. And it's good news for sinners. Anybody here? Good news for sinners? Great news. You need to be rejoicing in Romans. Bad news for religious people. Hello. Because you will be challenged to know that you have to repent of your sins, and you're going to have to repent of your good works if you're trusting them to get you to heaven. See what I'm saying? Bad news for religious people? Because religious people have this tendency to think because they have done so many religious good things, they're going to go to heaven on the basis of that. And the book of Romans says, no. You have to repent of your bad deeds, and everybody could agree with that. But in order to get into heaven and be saved through Jesus, you have to repent of your goodness. You have to repent of the good that you've been trying to do in order to get favor from God. And there's only one good that God is going to allow, the goodness of Jesus. If you have his goodness, not your goodness, his goodness, then you're right with God. If you have your goodness, it's called self-righteousness, and God will not allow that. It's a challenging thing, isn't it? That's why good news for sinners. All sinners should rejoice. Sinners call saints now, right? But bad news for religious people because they've been trusting in their works and they're trusting in their efforts and how good they could be throughout the week and they feed the cat and they, they do the, you know, the, the, you know, they feed the cat, they do good to the cat, they do good to the neighbor, and they, ah, oh, God owes me something. And boy, we're going to find out some things. By the way, the book of Romans, it's an amazing book. Christian after Christians uh, throughout history have said this book changed their lives. In fact, I talked to a very great saint of the Lord yesterday, Brother Aristide. If you guys remember Aristide, talked to him, and I was telling him, I'm going to be speaking on Romans. And he says, you know, I got saved through Romans. And he says, you know, you're like one of the 
maybe the 50th person that I read this week about how much Romans changed their lives. And this is something that you and I need to be open to, is the fact that the book of Romans changed lives. It does change lives. And he says, I got saved through that. And, and people that I've met saved through that. And saints throughout history were saved reading, simply reading the book of Romans. And so one commentator said, it is the festive epistle, the letter. It is a festive epistle. It is the epistle you take when you go on vacation and you read it. How many of you guys go on vacation? Not many people go on vacation. How many of you read the book of Romans when you're on vacation? I thought so. It is the most refreshing book, the commentator says, that you can take. Take it with you. Go on vacation, two days, three days, whatever you take, and you will be refreshed throughout the week. You will be refreshed throughout your days just reading the book of Romans. Ever thought about that? I know Christians, when you go on vacation, you stop being Christians. You throw, I don't have to be a Christian. It's not an everyday thing. And you go on vacation. People do that, by the way. They just go, oh, this is all the stuff I don't get to do when I'm, when I'm home. Well, when you're on vacation, you're still a Christian, and you're to read and you're to pray, and you're to find, hopefully, fellowship when you're out there. And so this is the time, most festive festival. One of my favorite heroes of the Bible, or, or the faith, I should say, William Tyndale. The Catholic Church hated him. The Catholic Church killed him because he translated the Bible into English. How many read the Bible into English here? How many read the Bible in English? Okay. Anybody here read it in another language, right? Spanish or something like that? Most of us read it in English, too. Well, we have to thank him. Praise God for William Tyndale. He paid a heavy price. The Catholic Church had him killed because he translated the Bible into English. How dare put it into the language of the common people. William Tyndale said this. This is amazing. He says, this is such good news. This is the gospel. This is good tidings, glad tidings, a wave of light and truth into your soul. Know it by memory. Devote to it. Study it. Get out of it as much as you can. Chew it. The better you chew it or the more you chew it, the tastier it will become. It's like daily bread, and you cannot study it enough. That's what he said. And he says, all Christians should memorize this book. All Christians should memorize this book. Anyone here memorize the whole book of Romans? No? Well, William Tyndall would say, start now. Do it now. He says, it certainly changed my life. He says, it is like a treasure. The more you dig, the more you find wonderful things in the word. So uh, memorize it, focus on it. You can say, well, I'm old. I can't memorize things. Well, you know, the, the wonderful thing about getting old and memorize, you start focusing on certain things, right? Because you can't memorize everything. You have to memorize certain things. Memorize the book of Romans and study it for yourself. Let's pray. Lord, in the minutes that we have together, help us to understand this wonderful, wonderful letter. It is still a letter. It is written to Christians. And Lord, as we sit here as Christians, as believers in your word and in your name, we ask you to refresh us with your word. Lord, we didn't come here to be entertained. We came here to be built up in our most holy faith. Please help us to read this book with new eyes. Please help us to read this book with a fresh eye, Lord, that our hearts would burn once we read it and begin to understand it. Make it come alive, Lord. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope it's a blessing to new believers as you get to know more about the gospel, but older believers as well get to know the book of Romans. It certainly would change your life. You will get out of it as much as you put into it. If you come here on Sundays and you just say, well, I just want Marco to tell me what it means. I don't care about it anymore than just the next hour. Then that's all you're going to get. Very little, a very shallow experience because that's all it is if that's all you do. But if you have a heart for it and you say, Lord, I want to learn it. I've never read it. I have no idea what it is. I want to learn it. Or maybe you have read it and say, I, never read, I haven't read it in 10 years. I want to learn it. I want to memorize it. I want to chew it. I want to think about it. You know, I will guarantee you this. Can't guarantee much things in this world, but I guarantee you one thing. When we're done with Romans, your life will be different. Guarantee you, if you put into it what we should put into it, putting it into practice, meditating on it, chewing on it, reading it, believing it, understanding it, it will change your life. And if you don't want to be changed, then just come here one hour on Sunday and go home. And that's all you can do. And that's all you're going to get. 
But if you really want your life to change, and I'm sure that if I ask you for a show of hands, I want my life to change for the better, of course, then get to know the book of Romans. Getting to know you. Now, the writer of the book, and by the way, today it's more like a classroom setting. We're not going to preach. I feel more like a, uh, uh, maybe like a teacher than a preacher today. Is that how it works? Okay. Uh, because a lot of what we're going to be talking today is understanding why it was written. Once you understand why it was written, the whole book becomes clear. And this is a very important thing. If you get to know the Bible, one thing you need to know for sure, first of all, is why it was written. Why was this book written? And I always tell you two things. There's two reasons why it was written. One has to do with humanity. There was a a thing that Paul was dealing with. Paul the Apostle, the writer, he was writing to a group of people in a church in Rome. Literal people, physical people, writing to them. The second reason why, it was God's decision. God's decision is that this book was penned. It's a letter. It's not a book in a sense of like a, you, know, you go to Barnes and Nobles and you pick up a book and you say, I'm going to read this book. It's actually a very personal letter. And sometimes personal letters get you more interested. I don't know how much money people paid for the intimate letters of Marilyn Monroe. Millions of dollars. It was crazy. People wanted to know the, the secrets of Marilyn Monroe. People wanted to buy it. Of course, there's some kind of deviant things about those things, but people wanted to know. People wanted to know letters, intimate things, right? Because people are curious. Well, this is a letter. It is not some shelf book, textbook kind of thing. It is a letter. And that letter, God has included uh, for us to know what that letter was about. It's God's reason. It's for us to know that letter. So the human reason, Paul needed to talk to them. The divine reason, God wanted to talk to you and talk to every Christian who lives between the first and second coming. This is a letter written to Christians who live between the first and second coming of Jesus, right? Well, that's you too. You live between the first and second coming of Jesus. So you qualify. This letter is for us. And Paul is writing from Corinth. He's writing from Corinth. In fact, he spent some time there, about 18 months, and he lived in a, in a house owned by a guy named Gaius. Gaius was his, uh, I guess you could say his host, and Paul wrote this around the year 55, 56 A.D., 55 to 56 A.D. Some commentators may, may, may have a little bit different on it if you, if you go online and read it because there's no specific date. You're not, isn't that one of those, those bad things about when you read the New Testament, you go, man, I wish there was a date on this. You know, on November 12, you know, 55 A.D., Paul began to write this letter. There's no timestamp like an email or a text, right, that we do today. Paul is writing, so the best we can focus on is that it's around those years, 55 to 56 A.D., and there's good reason for that. Paul was a missionary, and he traveled all through the world, all through the known world at the time. In fact, the furthest you can go in this ancient world was Spain. Have anybody been to Spain? The furthest you can go is Spain. Isn't that crazy? A long time ago, the furthest you can go was Spain. That's like saying the furthest you can go would be like you know, South America or something here, you know, as far as you can go in, in the world. Nobody knew about the Americas. Nobody knew about those things yet. They only knew that you can go as far as Spain. And Paul had a desire to go as far as, far as he can go to bring this gospel. And there it is. Rome stands as the capital of the empire at the time. Mighty Rome. He had been a missionary for about 20 years. He had been a missionary for about 20 years. And he now is going to pen down the gospel and things about God and the scriptures that are very, very interesting and fascinating. So we're not talking about a man who just got converted a couple years ago and he's writing, you know, his his half efforts or half digested truth. He is a man who has been a missionary. He's been through the world. He's been persecuted. He's been hated. He's been attacked. He's been... Betrayed. He's a man who knows what he's talking about, and he's going to pen down something very beautiful, and that is for the church in Rome, for Christians who live in this empire. By the way, Paul had not gone there. Paul had not met the church. He was not an elder of the church. He was not the founder of the church. He was only a friend of people that attended that church. So it was a very unique letter, unlike anything else. Paul wrote this without ever going to Rome first. 
And by the way, Paul uh, used a secretary to write this stuff. So if you're interested in those things, this is part of the, 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 the details of it. Paul did not pen this with his hand. He had a amenuensis. Amenuensis is a word for secretary. He had a secretary who dictated. He dictated, they wrote down. And in the book of Romans, chapter 16, at the end of the book, we find his name. His name was Tertius. Tertius was the amanuensis, the secretary who wrote it down. And he sends his greetings, by the way. He said hi. Romans 16, 22. He sends his greetings. I, Tertius, I am writing this letter. I greet you in the Lord. You just say back, hi, Tertius, thank you for writing this. Thank you, Lord, for having a man like Tertius who was faithful to pen down what Paul was saying. I don't know if you ever thank the Lord for those things. You thank the Lord, you're reading the Bible, you go, thank the Lord for that man. Man, thank the Lord for Paul. Thank the Lord for Gaius. Thank the Lord for those people that was able to get this book into my hands. And you should thank the Lord for people that prayed for you and people that share the gospel with you and people that pray for you and teach you the Bible. You should thank the Lord for this. In all things, I'm sorry, in everything, give thanks. So Tertius is writing this. But the question is, is Paul never went there. This is the Roman Empire at the time. Vast Roman Empire. Incredible Roman Empire. Why did Paul write it? Because that's the real key, isn't it? Why did Paul write? And uh, today, uh, hopefully, it's, it may become enlightening to your eyes and to your mind. Why I believe Paul wrote it? Because there's many, many people that have different ideas of why Paul wrote this book. And you're going to get as many, and you go online and you search it, you're going to find people that go, oh, he said this, he said that. And there may be interesting things, but I believe, as much as I've read it, as much as I could understand, there's a reason and a very good reason why Paul wrote this. And it's, right, it's found right in the Bible. I don't have to go outside the Bible to find it. And he certainly had no specific relationship with the Church of Rome. So this is a very good question. If he didn't find the church, meaning he, didn't, he wasn't the founder, he never attended. He didn't know the elders or leaders. He knew certain people there. Why did he write to a church that he never met? What was his purpose? It's a great question, isn't it? So when you're reading the Bible, it's a great question you should ask yourself. When you're doing a Bible study, ask those questions. Write them down. Why did Paul write this? He didn't find the church. It wasn't like, you know, he founded Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, Corinth, Galatia. There's a reason why he wrote to them. There's no specific reason necessarily. By the way, remember, it is a letter, an epistle. It's called an epistle. And let's just read the first, we'll just say seven verses together. Well, you don't have to say it together. I'll just read it. You, you read it in, in your mind. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, though, uh, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you are also are called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, Call the saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to keep reading verse 8 because it's just, just get on a roll. You would love to read it. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, in order that, you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each one of us, by uh, one another's faith, for yours, uh, both yours and mine. We'll stop there because we're not going to preach from it. We're just simply going to address the things that Paul said. It is a real letter. It has a greeting. You see the point of the greeting? You see uh, the, who's writing it is Paul. You see who's receiving it. It is the Roman church, I, Paul, uh, to, the, to the saints in Rome. By the way, this letter was carried by a lady, by a woman, by a lady. I'm not sure if, you, if that strikes you as odd. 
they had post office, they did have a post office service back then, but it was very, very expensive, incredibly expensive. And to send a letter was very costly and took a long time. It's not like today, not like two-day shipping, like Amazon and things like that. It took a long time to get there. However, the quickest way to get there, if you knew somebody that was going there, and there is a lady named Phoebe. In chapter 16 and verse 1, we get to know her. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 16 because it's fascinating. Paul mentions 40, 35 to 40 different names in this book. 35 to 40 different names of Christians, both men and women, addressed in this book. It's, un, it's very unusual. Paul didn't mention that many names in any other letter, but this one he does, and there's a very good reason for that. But here's Phoebe, most likely a widow, most likely a wealthy widow, who was from the church in San Crea, that was in Asia Minor, and she traveled about 1,500 miles to deliver this letter. About 1,500 miles to deliver this letter. You say, thank you, Lord, for Phoebe. What a lady. She's a deaconess, according to the Bible. And she was delivering this letter, chapter 16, verse 1. We get to meet her, and Paul says to the church in Rome, you accept her, you bring her in. She's a laborer. She's good. She's going to give you something. And this is what she was carrying. I wonder if she knew what she was carrying. Such an important letter. And she traveled, and this letter was brought to her, was brought by her to the Church of Rome. And what's unusual about it, not just the fact that it has 35 to 40 names, but it includes friends of Paul, and some even say family of Paul that attended that church. Some friends and family of Paul, like Aquila and Priscilla. And Paul had gone through all the mission fields, all the mission fields of the world, three of them at this time, but he had not gone to Rome he finally did get to Rome, by the way, in the book of Acts, but it wasn't in the way he expected. He went to Rome as a prisoner. Went to Rome as a prisoner. You find that at the end of the book of Acts. But first, before he gets that, he wants to go to Rome. Did you see that part where he says, I long to see you. I want to see you, and I want to be there. He's never been there. He's never met them personally. He knows people in the church, but he's never met them personally. And he wants to go to Rome because in the empire... Rome was the place to be. It was the center of the world at the time. It was the center of the world. I don't know what would be founded today, like maybe London or New York or things like that. It was the center of the world. Everybody went through Rome. Remember all the roads lead to Rome? Is that the old saying? All the, Rome's lead, all the roads lead to Rome? That's where it came from. It was literally all roads led to Rome. The Romans had this incredible uh, road uh, circuit, and they had miles and you can know, and they had these posts, and you can still go today to like uh, Middle East and even in Europe, they have these posts where the Roman road was located. You can travel still there, uh, like Aegean, uh, the, 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 the um, what is that road? It's the road that leads back to Rome. I forget the name of the sea, uh, the, the name of the road right now. But they have these posts, and they have a mile mark on it, and it tells you how far you were from Rome anywhere in the world. You were 1,000 miles from Rome, there will be a post that says you were 1,000 miles from Rome. If you were 1,500 miles from Rome, it will be a post that says you were 1,500 miles from Rome. Why? Because Rome wanted always for you to think how far or how close you were to the center of the world. It was kind of egotistical, but that's the way they thought. It was to make sure that you always relate back to Rome, always relate back to Rome. All the roads led to Rome, absolutely. And Paul says, I want that road, and I want that road to be used for the gospel. I want the road to take the gospel of Jesus to everywhere. If those roads lead to everywhere in the world, guess what? I want the right message to go to those places. What a guy. What a thoughtful and smart individual. Very practical. Hey, if those roads lead to Rome or out of Rome to, and into Rome, maybe we can send the gospel through those roads. Isn't that amazing? Then everybody in the world from Scandinavia to Spain will know the gospel. That's the way Paul thought. And there's a reason for why he writes this letter. But let's continue. He wanted to go to the ends of the earth, Spain. In fact, Rome got to England, Britannia, they called it, way up there. But Paul wanted to go to Spain. He wanted to get to the ends of the earth. And he wanted to establish the work. And I'll give you one good reason. On the right side, there's Syria. On the top part, toward the right, it's called Antioch. That's the church you find in the book of Acts. That's where church, that's the church Paul came out of. You know, like your home church? You have a home church? Okay. So let's say your CCOD or whatever church you came out of. That was your home base. As a missionary, Antioch was Paul's base. To go to Rome or to get to Spain, uh, that was a long way. <laughs> that's a long way. 
And in those days, you, there was no flights. There was no things like that. You can get to you can get to Iowa very quickly. You can get to Colorado very quickly today. You can get to the Philippines very quickly today. Back then, it took a long time. And so Paul's idea was if we can get to the middle of that place, and in the middle of that empire was Rome. It'll be easy to get to Spain. It'll be, get, it'll be easy to get to the ends of the earth. And his point was, we have to preach the gospel. We have to get the gospel out there. I think many times as Christians, we've lost that sense of why the Lord has us in certain places and why we want to go to certain places and why we need to go to certain places, right? What we use around us. What, what, is, what is it around us? What do you know and what do you use that'll help you share the gospel and take the gospel somewhere else? Paul thought this way. Where do I live? Well, you live here. How far is that to the ends of the earth? That's a bit far, Paul. Let's find a middle place that it'll be quickly to get from Rome to Spain. You see how Rome to Spain, not nowadays, is like a couple-hour flight. and it's nothing. But back then, it would take some time. So Paul's thinking, I want to get to the key city. In fact, Paul's mentality was that. Key cities in the Roman Empire that will help share the gospel to that area. Once the church is founded in there, then that church becomes the hub of the area to preach the gospel to that community. So Paul went to, can anybody name one city where Paul planted a church? Say it loud so I can hear it. Corinth. Why Corinth? It was a port city. It was a port city, and as much decadence and immorality as they were, there were a lot of people going to Corinth for a lot of bad reasons. Doesn't matter the reason why they're there. They're there. Share the gospel there. It's like going to Vegas or something. No offense to anybody that lives in Vegas. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's like going to Vegas. How many people go to Vegas? Thousands. Bring the gospel there, right? Right here, the 15 freeway takes us all through Vegas, right? Everybody, you know, correlates in this area. It's a great area to share the gospel. There's a lot of people that you meet from a lot of different places. You go to L.A., LA is, I mean, I've been to the LAX airport. I don't want to be there again, but I'm still going to have to be there. It's like an international city. You have, I don't know how many languages. Why? They're all coming there. And it's a great place to witness, LA, things like that. And that's what Paul looked at. He thought key cities throughout the Roman Empire, Ephesus, Corinth, Galatia, they could now take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And here it is, a practical thing, the Roman Empire. Now, although those things are important, what Paul's thought process was, it's not the reason why he wrote it. I don't believe that's the reason why he wrote it. He didn't write it to them to get in with them and go, hey, man, I want to use you and you use me, that kind of thing, let's work together. It wasn't quite that, although that's an important part of Paul's thought process. It wasn't to have a base and say, well, I'm just going to take that base. It would be good to launch from everywhere there. That's really good reasons, and it's really in Paul's mind, don't doubt it. First thing you read in the book, in the chapter. The second, re- or the, the ultimate reason, I think it has to do with the Church of Rome and how it started. By the way, nobody knows how the Church of Rome started. There have been many, many thoughts and many ideas. I'll give you one that uh, one church tried to take hold of it. It was called the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church said, Peter founded that church. And it's a lie. Peter did not find the church. He hadn't gone there yet. And uh, the Catholic Church says that Peter was the first pope and things like that. Again, those are things of lies. There's no evidence of Peter ever going to Rome. And I'll give you one example. Paul writes his letter, writes 40 names. Did you ever find Peter's name in that list? If Peter was the pastor of the Church of Rome, why didn't, Pete, why didn't Paul say hi to Peter? It could have just said, hi, Peter. What's up? How you doing? Nothing. There's no church history. There's no letter to Rome that Peter wrote. There's no evidence of Peter ever being there. So uh, we got to throw that one out. Peter did not go to Rome. Uh, as unbelievable as some people may think, that's not true. Now, we don't know who did it. However, we do know something interesting. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, so turn with me to the book of Acts, just quickly, just to the left of Romans. In chapter 2, we have a hint, and we have to put things together because there's no direct evidence, there's no person, there's no name of anybody who started the Church of Rome, but we do know this. Out of the 120 people who started worshiping the Lord in different languages at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, we get to the verse, verse 7, 
they began to speak in tongues, 120, worshiping the Lord in different languages. And it says, and they were all amazed. All the Jews from all over the world were there. Why are not all these... Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we, each other, in our own language, uh, how is it that e- uh, we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? These were Jews from Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, districts of Libya, around Cyrene, and very specifically, Luke writes this, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Here's our hint. There were Jews who came from Rome. And we know around this time there were about forty to 50,000 Jews who lived in Rome. A lot of, that, that's a lot, by the way. And, and I know it doesn't mean a lot to us today, but that's a lot of people. Forty to 50,000 Jews in Rome. And when they could travel to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, they did, they could. Those who could went. And guess what? They got saved. <laughs> they heard the gospel that Peter preached, and they became believers, and they didn't stick around. What did they do after they heard the gospel? They went back home. Now, once you become a Christian and you go back home, what do you do? <laughs> if this is the greatest news you ever heard, like people talk about a restaurant they went last night. Did you go to that restaurant, bro? Yeah, it was great. And it was good food, whatever. How much more is the gospel that you've just tasted the living water? Do you want your family to know? Do you want your friends to know? Say, Man, this is so different. And these were Jews who had found their Messiah. They could not wait to go home. And that's how the church started, I believe. I have no doubt that it was started by, not by apostles, not by elders. It was started by just the average person, like you and like me. Just wanted to tell people about Jesus. That's how a church starts, by the way. Just Christians that want to tell people about Jesus and they want to get together and say, you want to get together tomorrow? Sure, come on over. You want to get together on Thursday? Sure, come on over. And all of a sudden you have a Bible study and you have things you share. And they certainly began to look at the Bible. All they had was the Old Testament, right? So about half of it. I mean, not a half of it. It's not even, it's like three quarters of it. That's all they had. They didn't have the New Testament yet. And they surely, as Jews, were looking into the Old Testament going, whoa, this is about Jesus. And this other Psalm 2 is about Jesus. And these other things about Jesus. And so Rome began that way with people that wanted to tell people about Jesus. And there were Jews. Uh, you're in Acts. Let's turn to Acts 18. And I'll park you there for a little bit. Because something began to happen. Acts 18.2, as you turn there, I'll tell you a little bit about it. As the church began to grow, it was mainly Jewish. Jewish believers in Jesus. And because Rome was such a metropolis, there were so many people from different parts of the world coming in. The Jews who took the gospel to Rome, to their home, began to teach the gospel to Other people, other than Jews. And the church began to grow both in Jewish converts and Gentile converts, meaning non-Jews. But something happened. And around the year 49 AD, by the way, this is is history. Sorry to bore you. Is that all right? Okay, just a little quick five minutes history. Um, They tell me that history is the boringest subject in high school. So pardon me. Centonius was the secretary, was the personal secretary of Hadrian the emperor. Centonius, which is a great historian. If you're going to read history, you have to read Centonius. And he wrote, he was the personal secretary of Hadrian. And he wrote about this guy right here. And his name was Claudius. Claudius, everybody remember Claudius from your history class? No. You shouldn't have ditched that day. You should have stayed in class. Come on, you have to do it, right? Just kidding. Uh, Well, Claudius did something interesting. He was an immature Caesar. He was an immature emperor. And what he did, he was mad that there was an issue among Jews. You know what the issue was? Over a man named Crestus. A man named Crestus. And Suetonius writes that Claudius was very angry at the Jews because there was a conflict between Jews over a man named Crestus. Now, people have argued this for many, many years. Who is this Crestus the Jewish are arguing about? Doesn't it sound a lot like Christos? Now, whether it was misspelled or mispronounced, I don't know. 
but there was Jewish conflict among the Jewish community over a man named Crestus, says Suetonius. Quite interesting. Could have been Christ. The issue was Jews were arguing about this man, who he was. Certainly sounds like Jesus. I don't doubt that it was probably about Christ. Now, this is history, by the way. It's not talking about the Bible. I'm talking about history. You can go find this out. Suetonius said Claudius was so angry at the Jews. He says, yeah, that's it. I had it with you guys. All the Jews, get out of there. And he kicked 40 to 50,000 Jews out of Rome in the year 49 AD. You don't believe me? Acts 18. Let's read verse 1 very quickly and 2. And these things he left Athens, Paul, and he went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he came to them. And because of they had the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working by trade, and they were tent makers. So here's something interesting that the New Testament sheds light onto what history sheds light on. Claudius kicked the Jews out. Acts 18.2 tells you exactly that. Suetonius says they had an argument among Jews because of a guy named Crestus. And Priscilla and Aquila were both Jews from Italy, from Rome, and they were kicked out. And they met Paul in Corinth, and they stayed with them because they were both of the same trait. They were both leather workers. Tent makers really is the word, but it's worker of leather. And there you have it. Jews are out. So what happened after that is Claudius eventually dies. It doesn't, doesn't rain too much. But um, around the year 54 AD, there was a man named Nero. Anybody know Nero? Crazy guy. But before Nero became crazy and demon-possessed, by the way, before he became that, he was a very good emperor. He was a very good emperor. In fact, it's kind of like Hitler. When Hitler came on, people loved him. People loved him because he, he did good to the German people. Well, Nero had a problem. The economy in Rome had tanked bad, and he needed to do something. And guess what he did? He invited the Jews back because he knew the Jews are good at business and running a business and doing some trade. And he invited the Jews back. And around the year 54 AD, the Jews came back, all the Jews. Now, Jews, unbelieving Jews, and believing Jews were kicked out, Aquila and Priscilla being one of them. When Nero comes back, he invites them all back and says, you guys come back and help us out. Rome's about to go bankrupt. We need some Jewish blood here. And sure enough, Rome was filled again with Jews, both Christians, Jews, believing Jews, and unbelieving Jews. And so now let's talk about the church. There's a problem in the church now. What is the problem? Very simply, you had a church that started with Jewish people that believed in Jesus. They witnessed to Gentiles, and you had a minority of Gentiles, but majority of Jews in the church. Claudius come on the scene and says, you Jews get out, believing and unbelieving. It doesn't matter. Remember, the government doesn't care if you're an unbelieving Jew or a Jewish believer or an unbeliever. You're a Jew, you're out. They leave. The church in Rome, who runs it now? Gentiles. Nero comes back on the scene. We need you guys back. They come back. Now what the problem is, Jews are back. Believing Jews come back to the church, but who's running it? Gentiles. And now there's a conflict. There's a conflict now because this is the beginning of why I believe the book of Romans was written. The conflict was, is God done with Israel? Is God done with the Jewish people? He certainly kicked them out of Rome. Maybe that's their punishment. And people began to think that way in the beginning of what we call replacement theology, meaning that the church has now replaced Israel in the plan of God. And this didn't start here with the Reformed theology. It started way back then when people began to think God is done with Israel because, look, he kicked the Jews out. Now they're back. Now you're a second-hand citizen because the church is mainly run by Gentiles. Surely, I believe, Aquila and Priscilla knew about this problem, and they called Paul. and said, Paul, we got a problem. Remember, Paul is a Jewish believer in Jesus, and he loves the Jews, but he's also called to go to the Gentiles. You're a Gentile? Thank God for Paul. He went. God called him to preach to your people, my people as well. He called to preach to Gentiles. He knows about Israel. He knows about the rejection of the Messiah, but he also knows that God has a plan for the Jewish people. So I believe when Paul is writing to Rome, you'll see it when we go through it. There are so many examples of how Jew and Gentile are supposed to live together in Christ. 
how many times he tells them, Jews have sinned this way, Gentiles have sinned this way. But all of us have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Sinners, we all are. Faith in Jesus is what we all need. Just like Abraham, who was both a Gentile and a Jew. We all need Abraham. We all come from Adam, he says. Well, he's certainly going back to the root of the problem, right? But the root of all people, Jew and Gentile, we all come from Abraham by faith, and we all come from Adam. But we all could be justified in one person, Jesus. That's the key. No matter if you're a Gentile or a Jew, you have a problem. <laughs> problem is called sin. Need forgiveness. Need justification. You need Jesus, no matter how you are, if you're a religious Jew or if you're a pagan Gentile. And that's the Paul. That's Paul's point. And the climax of it all, and this is why he said it, you get to the middle of the book and you'll find the climax. You know, you find the, you watch a movie, you guys watch a movie, and you see the beginning part, but you know the end part, but then what's the key? It's that middle part where things can swing either way. You guys don't watch movies. Okay. You guys look at me like, what is that movie? <laughs> you know, like, you know, those, those three-hour things you guys watch so much, so much of it, right? That in the middle of it, it's the climax. It can swing either way. Well, guess what? Just like, I guess like a movie, Paul writes his climax right smack in the middle. Does Israel have a future? Does Israel have a future? Well, the question is going to be answered very, very soon, especially when we read it. I can tell you that most commentators, most commentators don't deal with Romans 9 and 11. Most commentators will get to 8 and then skip to 12. They'll just say, well, you know, 9 through 11, Paul had some issues and he needed to get it off his chest and he had this, 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 this message in his back pocket and he pasted it right in there. He's talking about faith, salvation, justification, sin, redemption, and plops, he puts Israel, and then he goes back to explaining how we're to live with one another. And so commentators, including Luther, says, we have no idea why he put it in there, 9-11. We have no idea. We're just going to ignore that part and go right down to 12. In fact, I've heard people say, there's no life after 8. There's no life after 8. That's sad, isn't it? These are Christian commentators. There's no life after 8, meaning the 8th chapter in Romans there's, don't worry about anything else after that. That's pretty bad, isn't it, when people say that? That's terrible. But we're not going to be like that. We're going to be people of the book. We're going to be people of the Bible. And we're going to read the whole thing because it's a letter. Remember, it's a personal letter. You're going to know things about Paul that are very personal. You're going to know things about Paul that you're going to be like, I never thought about Paul this way. Paul was a missionary. Paul was a lot of things. But one of the things he is, he was a pastor. He was a pastor, and as a pastor, he had the heart of Jesus. He cared for people. Now, I want to read something to you from Paul that he wrote about himself. Turn to Philippians 3. Philippians 3. As I promised you, we're not going to teach on Romans today. We're just going to surround the book of Romans with all the other verses that shed light into Paul the Apostle. We're shedding light into Paul the Apostle. Philippians chapter 3. Let's read it. This is Paul, the same Paul who says, I am a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set aside for the gospel. His name was Saul of Tarsus, Shaul of Tarsus, Shaul, Paul the apostle. Philippians 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things against you, against, again, is no trouble to me. Actually, it's safety for you. Beware of false teachers, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of those who are the false circumcision. For we are the true Jews who worship in the spirit of God and, and glory in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put a confidence in the flesh, I have more confidence. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, we'll explain what that means, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, I was found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted loss for the sake of the Messiah, for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them to be Scubula, rubbish, a crude word that means literally like fecal matter. All the things that I've gained have nothing more than what you flush down the toilet. 
That's literally what he's saying. In order that I may gain Christ, and I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This is Paul. By the way, this is interesting. We have no idea what Paul looked like. Except some German Christians. Now, take this out. And saying some German Christians did this. It's kind of interesting. They took all the composites of all the writings of church history, of what Paul looked like, put it in a computer, and let the computer tell us what Paul might have looked like. And this is not from the Bible, by the way, the church history. There's no description of Paul in the Bible. But there are descriptions of Paul outside the Bible in history and in Christian literature. They took all those features, put it in a computer, and said, tell us, you know, like um, forensic. You see those detectives that they have the sketch and things like that? They put it in and said, what Paul would have looked like? Now, I have no idea if he looked like that, but I thought it was interesting. I thought it was interesting to you. Maybe you don't, but this is one of the descriptions of Paul. It's found in the, one of the early writings of the Christian church. Not in the Bible, just a description of Paul. That he was a man of little stature, thin hair on the head. Praise God for some of you guys who just look like Paul. Crooked in the legs. A good state of body. Eyes, brow, joining. He had a unibrow. And nose somewhat hooked, full of grace. Sometimes he appeared like a man, and sometimes he had the face of an angel. But this is a description of Paul the Apostle. Now, I'm not sure if he looked like that, but it's quite interesting. He was a Jewish believer in Jesus. He was a Pharisee. In fact, according to what we know about Pharisees, he was strict on the Old Testament law. He lived to keep the law. He lived to keep the Jewish law. He was a zealot, and he was a Roman citizen. A Jewish zealot in a combination of a Roman citizen. Why am I saying this? Because when we read Paul, and back to Romans, by the way, when we read Paul, we have to think of something very quickly. Paul was not a Protestant. <gasps> Paul never went to a church like this. Paul was not a Catholic. He never went to a cathedral. Paul was not reformed, surprisingly, to people. He was not. He was a Jewish believer in Jesus. And as a Jewish believer in Jesus, he had some very, very fascinating things to tell us about Jesus. And so sometimes we miss this gap about Paul because when he's writing, he's not writing like a church theologian. You know, you pick up a commentary, and you pick it up today. It's systematic theology or something like that, and you go, oh, okay. He's not writing like that. I know they've made him into that, but the, he's not writing like that. He's not writing like a commentator. He's not writing in any such things like a theologian, although he was. He's writing as a pastor and a brother and a missionary who cares for people and wants to bring the gospel. But he's a Roman citizen. That means he has all the enmities of being a Roman citizen. He has freedom of speech. He can say and he can preach. He can travel. He can do a lot of things. And one thing for sure, the message of Romans is this. As we read about Paul and his desire to know Jesus, I think the summation of the book, what the book is about, the letter, is found in Romans 1.16. If you want to turn there real quickly, I'll just read it, with, uh, I'll just read it to you if you don't have a Bible. Paul says this, Romans 1, 16 and 17, I believe is the key to launch from in order to understand the book. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith. Remember, there's a gap in our understanding of Paul. He is not an American. <laughs> he is a Jewish rabbi, teacher, Christian, pastor, missionary. And he's trying to tell us something. And by the way, uh, I have like 10 things that Paul says in all his letters. We won't, we won't deal with this today, by the way. So you're okay. You'll be home in time. Uh, but there are 10 things that are unique to Paul's writing. You can see them there. Things that he sheds light into about what we're to be like, not only his, as a man, 
his thought process, but also how to apply it as citizens of the new age. And, and what about the future and our hope in Jesus, right? All these things are found in his writings. So this is very exciting. But one thing for sure, the gospel. I am not ashamed of this message. What is the gospel? It is the power of God, the message of God, the good news that Jesus has come. But it's not the gospel of love. He doesn't call it the gospel of love. He doesn't call it the gospel of peace in this. He doesn't call it the gospel of joy. What does he call it? The gospel of righteousness. The gospel of righteousness. It is the most used term in the Bible for the gospel. It is the gospel of righteousness. What is righteousness? He even says the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What is righteousness? We talked about it last week a little bit. Righteousness is getting right with God. That's what it all means, getting right with God. How can a righteous, holy, perfect God be right with imperfect, broken men who's full of flaws? How can that righteous God be friends with you today? How can he even be in the same room with you, let alone the same universe with you? How come this God of righteousness and full righteousness not consume us when we mess up and we sin and we blow it? You know, and he knows every thought. He's... We're transparent to him. He knows our thoughts. He knows the thoughts you're thinking right now. He knows if they're good thoughts. He knows if they're bad thoughts. He knows if there's selfishness in your heart or not. And he knows even the thoughts that you haven't thought of yet. That's scary. He knows even the intentions of your heart. Everything's clear and open to him. And he still loves you. And he still forgives. How can he do that? Does he let everybody No, he would be an evil God if he just let everybody go. He wants to make you righteous, right with him. How can he make you right with him? Paul says there are two ways to be right with God, and one of them doesn't work. There are two ways to be right with God, and one of them doesn't work. You want to know which one's the one that don't work? You want to know the one that does not work? (laughs) The one that does not work is when you try to be good enough for him, that you are trying to be good to get better so he could accept you. Paul says, you read Philippians 3 with me? He says, I was a professional at being good. <laughs> That's the summation of Philippians 3. I was a professional about being good. You want to try to be good? How many of you, how many, like me, how many try to be good? Before you met Jesus, you were trying your hardest You know, Paul would say, this is no pun intended or anything like that. Ha, I outwork you. That's what he would say in his pharisaical demeanor. I am better than you still. The Pharisees would fast three times a day. Hello. (laughs) Three times a week. Pray several times a day. Give their money. More than that, they would give of their spices in their spice rack. 10% of salt, 10% of cumin, 10% of parsley. Seriously. They were so meticulous about being right with God, they worked at it. They were professional do-gooders. And nobody was going to outwork them, not even Paul. Paul says, you want to know what I did? I was a Pharisee. About the law, I was blameless. If you were going to look at me from the outside, looking in, you would say, man, that guy's good. That guy's perfect. Yet Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, unless you're more right than the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. I am sure the disciples said, well, I'm out. (laughs) Cash your chips in. I'm out. Because those guys, there's nobody good than them. There's nobody better than them. And Paul was the best of the Pharisees. Not just best among sinners, best among the best who were trying to be good. He was the best. And then one day, Paul says he met the law. And you know which one got him? Does anyone know which commandment Paul says? I died that day when I read the commandment. I died. Anybody know which one it was? It's the last one. Until he says, I found all manner of coveting in my heart. What is coveting? Wanting something somebody has, somebody else has. I want that. I desire that. And he found all manner of sin in his life, he said. 
Because when he stood next to Jesus, he was a filthy sinner. He was unbelievably sinful. When he stood next to Jesus, he had no chance of being right. He had all his life had compared himself to other, other Pharisees, other Gentiles. And surely among those, he was probably better. But not next to Jesus. Because that's the standard. That's the one, the standard that God will judge us by. And so the one that doesn't work is when you're trying to build up that standard and says, I'm going to be good. I'm going to do this. I'm going to feed the dog. I'm going to do meals on wheels. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to just try to be good to make it. Paul says, I tried all that. I'm a professional. (laughs) Did it bring me joy? No. Did it bring me forgiveness? No. Did it bring me freedom? No. Only one person did all that. Jesus. He says, when I met Jesus, I was free, he said. I was free. When I met Jesus, life became different. It was not about the flesh anymore, striving in the flesh and trying to be good and work your way up. You know when you were like that, right? You had to do the rosary. You had to knock on doors. You had to do this. You got to do that. You got to do the other. You got to pray for this and do that. And <sighs> Did I make it? No, not quite. Keep going. And you never knew when because nobody could ever tell you how good you had to be. They just said, be good. Well, how good is good? I don't know, but just keep trying. And there's so many people that are stuck in that mentality. And Paul says, you want to know what good is? I tried it. I failed. I failed so bad because it was about my own goodness. I was trying to be good for me and to show God how good I was. And yet there was one person who had done it all. The righteousness of God. You want to get right with God? Don't have your own goodness. Have this man's goodness. Jesus, the Messiah, went to the cross to pay for your unrighteousness and to pay for the fact that you were trying to make your way to heaven and fail miserably. He went to the cross and paid for that sin and paid the way for you to go into the Father's house through his death and his resurrection. But how do we get right with God? By faith. The righteousness that comes by faith. And the word faith It has an action of believing, like mental, but it has an action of heart and has an action of feet, meaning you have to understand it, you have to believe in your heart, and you have to do something about it, and you have to respond and repent. That's the action that faith takes. It's repentance. You have to turn from your sin and say, God, I'm sorry. I am not righteous. I've tried to live my righteous life. Remember I told you you have to repent of your goodness? If you were trying to be good, you have to repent of that. And if you were bad, you have to repent of that. And if you were trying to be good, you have to repent of that. Because that righteousness will not be allowed. Only that righteousness. The righteousness. Does it say the righteousness of Marco? No. The righteousness of Andre? He's a pretty righteous guy. No, that doesn't quite fit. The righteousness of Dana? The right, I mean, there's a lot of great godly people, but no, that's not what I need. I need the righteousness of God. How righteous is he? Unbelievably, phenomenally, unfathomably righteous. And that is yours by believing and trusting in Jesus. That's it. That's all Paul had to say. That's the beginning. You are my friend. You do that. You are justified before a holy God. That means a holy God is say to Phil, Phil, you are right with me. Because you believe in my son. There's nothing between me and you. We're clean. We're good. We can hang out. We can be friends. I'm your Lord. And you follow me. But I'm going to be your friend. I'll be a friend of sinners. And that's what Jesus will become to all of us. And Paul was so excited to bring this. And you see how the point is that if somebody would mess with that, with that message... It'll change it, distort it. It'll bring a different gospel, a different message. And if you don't believe in it and you start striving and there's strife among believers, then that message falls on deaf ears. And Paul says, I am going to make sure that the church in Rome continues in the faith by writing to them about the relationship they have with each other because God has a plan. 
And the plan is to bring Jew and Gentile together in one person in Jesus. And if they break apart, they're not going to be one in Jesus. They're going to be all messed up and fractured. Imagine if this group here didn't talk to that group there. But you both believe in Jesus, but you don't talk to each other. There's no witness to the world. There's no, there's no power in, in your life because there's strife and arrogance and pride. It makes the message void. The message is strong only when there's power in the spirit and unity. And Paul says, I want to address that. By the way, I'll give you this very, very quickly. The outline. Chapter 1. I'm sorry. I'll give you this. There's lots of outlines that you can follow. Any outline you want. I'll give you the one I think it is, and then you can follow whichever you want. But you have that freedom. Romans is so packed that there are like 10 or 15 outlines you can follow. You can go to any website, and they will give you an outline that's different than this one. And you are surely free to pick that one. However, for the sake of us here on Sundays, um, we're going to do this one. Chapter 1 and 3, the first half of chapter 3, the sins of men and the wrath of God. So that's what we got up in the next few chapters, is what are the sins of men and what is the wrath of God? When we get done with that, we're going to deal with justification. When God says, you are justified, you are made right with God, through faith in Jesus. And what does that mean? And is that the final stop? Is that, I'm justified, I'm good. Is that all God intended for me to do? Well, we'll talk about that. But those are chapter 3 and chapter 5. By the time we get to chapter 6 and 8, this is a big one. And people love chapter 7. So we're going to find out chapter 7. It's a fun chapter to do. Don't backslide. Don't go back. The sins of the Gentiles is described in chapter 1 very, very clear. Sins of Gentiles is found in chapter 1. What is the sin of Gentiles? I'll go back to this in a minute. Immorality. You find it all in chapter 1. What is the sin of the Jews? The sin of the Jews is very secret. It's hiding. The sin of Gentiles is very open. Immorality, chapter 1. Chapter 2 is very secret. They They have a secret sin. And it's found in all religious people. It's called hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. The Gentile sin, openly, immoral behavior. Just go to Hollywood, right? Gentiles sin like, they sin like that. Jews sin privately, hypocritically, secretly, pride, hypocrisy. But both have sinned. There's only an answer to that, justification by faith. But sometimes in your walk, you, you tend to go back. There's a pull because of your old nature that wants to go back. If you're a Gentile, Paul says, you're going to have the tendency to go back to your original sins. What is that original sin? Immorality. You're going to be tempted by your flesh to go back to immoral behavior. If you're a Jew or a religious person, guess what? You're going to want to go back to legalism. Legalism. Oh, I got to get right. I got to pray 30 times a day. I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this just to be right with God. Legalism. Trying to earn again your way. Well, don't backslide, Paul says. And then he gets, when you get to chapter 9, I want to show you the relationship of the church with Israel. What does Israel have to do with us? How does it relate to us today? It's a great question. I think it's a lot of fun in this one because there's a lot of that today. Tremendous amount of information and news. Israel's back in the land, the temple. They're going to restore the temple. They're going to make peace with the Antichrist and things like that. They are prime for a major deception. What is our role as Christians to Israel? Some of the churches will say, nothing, they're done, right? And some of the churches say, oh, it's everything, man. It's all about the Jews. And they don't need the gospel. They're already saved. On one extreme and the other extreme. And yet Paul says, no, there's, there's a perfect balance of this. When we get to chapter 12 and 16, this is a beautiful, beautiful chapter. Because Paul says to them, now... You Jew and Gentile, you have a right relationship with God like this, horizontal. You need a right relationship with God. Vertical, I'm sorry. Vertical. I don't even know my way up or down. Vertical, you need a right relationship with God horizontally. How is it worked out? Relationships outside the church? How are those? And relationships inside the church? How are those? How about the weaker brother? You ever dealt with the weaker brother in faith? How do you deal with them? I smash him to pieces, tell him he's wrong. (laughs) 
Or do you care about the weaker brother? Do you care about what stumbles him? Very important, Paul says, greet each other with a holy kiss. Isn't that cute? <laughs> it's beautiful. Greet each other. I mean, in the light of what Jesus has done for us, don't you have affection one for another? Do you really love the person next to you? But it's a holy thing. It's a holy kiss. Don't get any ideas. It's not a kiss. It's a kiss, you know. Don't get the girls and start kissing them. It's a holy kiss. It's a righteous kiss. It's a kiss that Jesus would give them. That's the kiss you want to give. But he still encourages them. Give each other a holy kiss. Hello. This is the book of Romans. I hope you get to know them or know them or get the book. And I hope the book of Romans gets to know you too. Get this into your heart. Get into it and get it inside of you. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for all your blessings and goodness and for the cross of your son, the Lord Jesus, what he's done for us, the righteousness of God given to individuals who have sinned and fallen short through faith in what he's done for us. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending your son, for making us right with him. And I praise you today for what you'll do in us and through us. We ask you for your kindness and mercy. Please be with us the rest of the day, Lord God. Please remind us of the book of Romans. Please, Lord God, don't let us go away from this book over the next few months. Let us memorize it, attach it to our hearts. Let us chew on it. Let us be changed by it. And we thank you for what you're doing in us. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name, amen.